Take your Bible and turn, please, to Job chapter 36. Job chapter 36. I want to commend you young people. Last night we had a minimal amount of, of distraction. And uh, it, the easiest thing in the world to do is to preach to people who love preaching. And uh, it seemed to me like both balconies were filled with students and they listened very, very uh, well. And I want to ask you, please, if you would remain in your seat during the preaching, unless it's an emergency, to eliminate any unnecessary distraction. All right, Job chapter 36 and verse 26 is our text. Notice, please. It says, Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. Neither can the number of His years be searched out. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Most of you are familiar with the plight of Job. In Job chapter 1, the devil comes before God, and God says, where have you been? He says, I've been up and down throughout the earth trying to find people that I can deceive. And uh, God says, have you thought about my servant Job? He said, he's a man who avoids evil and he loves God. And uh, so God says, you can do anything you want to to him, but you cannot touch his life. Well, servant after servant came in in Job chapter 1 and gave him bad news that the devil had engineered. And uh, one servant said, uh, 7,000 sheep of yours were burned up. A fire came down from heaven and burned up all those sheep. And somebody says, the Sabians came in and they stole your 3,000 camels and 500 oxen. Well, that was not the worst of it. Finally, somebody said, now you've heard some bad news, but this is the worst. He said, your 10 children were eating in their house. And the, the roof caved in on them, and all of your ten children are dead. Question, how would you have responded to that? In Job 1, 21 and 22, Job said, Naked came I forth out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord giveth, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with all this, Job sinned not with his lips, nor charged God foolishly. Could you stand up under that kind of a, an ordeal? Well, in Job chapter 2, the devil came back before God. And he said, now you've let me take away his material possessions, but that's not the ultimate. He said, let me touch his body, and you'll see what kind of a character he has. God says you can touch his body, but you can't touch his life. Well, one day Job woke up and he had boils all over his entire body from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. I think that a man can go through any crisis in life if his wife will stand with him. And I think the worst thing this side of hell would be a nagging wife. 
I heard about a preacher who stood up at a preacher's meeting and he said, God's been so good to me. He said, he gave me a precious Christian wife. I was married to her for 25 years and God took her. Said, then God gave me another precious Christian wife. I was married to her for 15 years and God took her. He said, now this last one, he said, I've been married to for 10 years and anytime God wants to, he can take her. <laughs> now folks, you've got to be somewhat sympathetic with Job's wife's reaction. As a mother, how would you feel if you were told all of your children were dead at the same time? So, evidently, she was very, very disturbed and distraught about the whole thing. And she said, Job, why don't you curse God and die? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Well, the only thing I can think of that'd be worse than having a nagging wife would be to have three fundamental Baptist preachers from the ministerial assassination and taunt you day and night and call you a hypocrite. That's what happened. These three men were so-called comforters, uh, but the only comfort that Job experienced out of their coming was for seven days they didn't say a word. And that was the comfort that Job had. But finally, after seven days, they began a tirade. And they said, Job, your problem is your bones are full of the sin of your youth, and they're going to take you to your grave. And God knows you've got hidden sins. And Job stood up so sterlingly, but one day he put up his guard and he began to defend himself. And he said, you've charged me wrongly. I don't have any sin, hidden sins. I'm not suffering from the sins of my youth. He said, as a matter of fact, I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd have died in my mother's womb. And uh, there was a young man standing by by the name of Elihu. And he didn't say a word while these three hypocritical comforters uh, gave their tirade against Job. And finally, after they got through, he said this. He said, now, men, I'm much younger than you. You're much wiser than I. And I didn't want to be presumptuous, so I didn't say anything. But I think I've got some things from God that you need to hear. And if you'll read Job chapter 36, you will find that Elihu had wisdom way beyond his years. And in his declamation, he made this statement, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. I'm afraid the world today has to say, God is great, but we know him not. The average person thinks that God is so far removed from man that we can't know anything about God. But I've got good news for you tonight. Uh, God has revealed himself to man through a book called the Bible. And we can know about God. If you don't know him, I'd like to introduce him to you tonight. Many years ago, my wife and I were in Pennsylvania in a meeting. And I picked up the local newspaper and I read an interesting story. Some college students from a local college came to a local Baptist church and they had a beer party in the basement of the Baptist church. 
When they finished their beer card, uh, party, they scattered their cans over the basement of the Baptist church. They went out in the church parking lot and they found that their cars were stuck in the mud. So they went back into the church auditorium, got some Bibles and hymnals, put them under their rear tires, saturated them in the mud to give them traction to leave the church parking lot. You say, my, how terrible. Truth of the matter is, most of you were unaffected by that story. But I'll tell you what, if I had told that story 25 years ago, there would have been a gasp of disbelief across this auditorium. Now, what's the difference? I'm afraid that in the day in which you and I live, it is the norm to make light of things that are sacred, spiritual, and right. Hey, did you ever think you would live to see the day when a preacher would propound the thesis, God is dead? That wasn't a man who called himself an atheist. That was a man who called himself a preacher. Do you know that in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, in the Bible Belt, in a Methodist church, they had a funeral for God. Preacher got up at the funeral for God, and he said, you killed God because you squeezed his hand too tightly. He said, by the way, God really never did exist. You just created him out of the fear of your mind. Hey, a lady came to me in Michigan. She said, Brother Comfort, I heard a rock song last week with two words. She said, would you like to know what they are? I said, if you'll tell me. She said, the first word was the word God. The second word was a four-letter word that starts with D. Over and over and over and over again. I generally, when I'm home, I wash our cars on Saturday. And very few times, Pastor, when I go to wash my car, do I not hear somebody with their rap music blaring using God's name in vain. A professor at Purdue University made a survey. He found that among the hundred most used words in the English language was every word of profanity. By the way, I am sick and tired of going in fundamental churches and hearing young people and even adults saying, Oh my God. I want you to know God's first name is not my and God will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. This Purdue University professor found that out of every five words that a factory worker uses, one out of five is a word of profanity. So that means that the average factory worker cannot even utter a sentence without using profanity. Hey, my wife and I were in Albion, Michigan many years ago. Albion College, a Methodist school, took a week out of their curriculum to celebrate the death of God. I have in my files the manuscripts of what went on that week celebrating the death of God. They had a Baptist preacher, a Methodist preacher, a Roman Catholic priest, an interdenominational preacher, and the statements those men made were enough to make an atheist 
blood curdle. I've never heard, I've never read any more blasphemous statements in my life. At this same Methodist college in the 60s, they invited Gus Hall, the leader of the Communist Party in America, to give a declamation. And as he closed his declamation, he said this, I will not be satisfied until every congressman in America is strangled to death on the guts of every gospel preacher. And would you believe they gave him a standing ovation? Now, I ask you, why are things going the way they are? Why is blasphemy the order of the day? I am convinced that the people that stand behind our pulpits are to blame. We've given people a false conception of God. The average person thinks that God has a long flowing white beard, he's a grandfatherly type, and he's absolutely pleased with everybody. A man can run off with his neighbor's wife, he can lie, he can cheat, he can steal, and God is absolutely pleased with everybody. I want to say that's not the God of the Bible. Acts 17 and verse 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. I want to speak to you tonight on this subject, what is God like or the nature of God? The best book in the Bible, I believe, on the nature of God is the book of Psalms. And for that reason, we will stay almost exclusively tonight in the book of Psalms. Take your Bible and turn, please, to Psalm 99 and verse 9. What is God like? Is He like Hollywood says, He's a man upstairs? Hollywood actress says, God's a living doll. Is he like Tommy Lasorda says, he's the big dodger in the sky? What is God like? All right, notice please, Psalm 99 and verse 9. It says, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Hey, don't ever forget it. First and foremost, God is holy. He cannot be loving apart from His holiness. He cannot be merciful apart from His holiness. He cannot be gracious apart from His holiness. Every attribute of God is contingent upon His holiness. You know, I believe the worst thing about the contemporary Christian movement is this. They have taken a holy God and they have brought Him down to the level of sinful man. He's our buddy. He's not a holy God. And ladies and gentlemen, our job today is not bringing God down to the level of man. Our job is taking man and lifting him up to the level of a holy God. He's holy. Uh, Psalm 93 in verse 5. Holiness becometh thine house. O Lord, forever. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Leviticus 20, 21. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, 
am holy. First Samuel 2 and verse 2, for there is none holy as the Lord. Psalm 22 and verse 3, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel. Psalm 111 verse 9, holy and reverent is his name. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Now, there are three things entailed in holiness. Number one, holiness cannot sin. Hey, I'm so glad of that. My life is in the hands of a God who cannot sin. To me, the worst thing about Calvinists, it has made God the author of sin. John Calvin made this statement. Not only did God know that Adam and Eve would sin, listen. He said he willed that Adam and Eve would sin. You know what that makes God? The author of sin. That's not the God of the Bible, folks. The Bible says in uh, Job 34 and verse 10, Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Nehemiah 9:33, How be it thou art just in all that is brought upon us. He cannot sin. I'm so glad of that. Number two, he cannot look upon sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities are separated between you and your God. And your sins, if it is faced from you, that he will not hear. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. Thou art of pure eyes and behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity. Question, how many of you have ever heard somebody say this? I don't believe a loving God would send a soul to hell. If you've heard that, raise your hand. Sure you've heard that. Let me say, if you die and go to hell, don't put the blame on God. You see, I said Sunday morning, hell was never made for man. Matthew 25, 41, Matthew 25, 46, it was made for the devil and his angels. And so, ladies and gentlemen, if you die and go to hell, you're trespassing, and you go there by your own will. Come with me to Mount Calvary in your mind. Here Jesus is hanging on a cross. Now, if you will go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will never find that Jesus called his father my God until he hung on the cross. For the first time in all of his earthly existence, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, God could not look upon his son because your sins and mine were upon Jesus Christ. And God had to turn blind eyes and deaf ears to the prayer of his son. He cannot look upon sin. 
If God could not look upon his own son on Calvary, he can't let you get to heaven uncleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you got to heaven uncleansed by the blood of Christ, heaven would cease to be heaven and would turn into hell. Number one, holiness cannot sin. Number two, holiness cannot look upon sin. Number three, holiness cannot overlook sin. A universal law, Ezekiel 18 and verse 4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Numbers 32, 23, and be sure your sin will find you out. 1 John 1 and verse 5, this sin is a message which you have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. You know, Pastor, when I started preaching in evangelism 60 years ago, I never thought I would live to see the day that I would have to thunder against adultery in fundamental Baptist churches. And a preacher told me this. He said, Brother Comfort, realize this. What's going on out there in the world many times is going on in fundamental Baptist churches. And I'm afraid that's true. I'm afraid that's true. Now, some of you may think, I'm saved, so my sins are under the blood, and I'm never going to have to give an account for my life. That's wrong. Every one of us who is saved will one day give an account for our life. And I believe with all my heart, if you are living in adultery, you are playing a losing game. He cannot overlook sin. He cannot look upon sin. Number one, God is holy. Take your Bible and turn, please, to Psalm chapter 139, verses 1 through 12. I love this, my favorite portion of Scripture. Number two, God is omniscient. That means He's all-knowing. Notice Psalm 139, verses 1 through 12. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from Thy Spirit? Or whither shall I flee from Thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, Thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, sure the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as a day, and the darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. He's all-knowing. Hey, you know God knows you so well that the very hairs on your head are numbered. Now I look at some of you men, and I realize God didn't have a hard time numbering the hairs on your head. Some of your head's like heaven. There's no parting up there. And pastor, you're on that uh, route too. Uh, one day your wife's going to be able to count the hairs on your head. But... Uh, God knows all about you, folks. Now, three things I want you to notice that He knows. Verse 1, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. He knows me personally. Hey, all of my life I heard that Jesus 
dying for the world. All of my life I heard that uh, everybody was a sinner. But the night I got saved, I didn't see Jesus dying for the world. I saw him dying for Ron Comfort. I didn't see everybody as a sinner. I saw Ron Comfort as a sinner. As a 15-year-old boy, I was in the city auditorium in Asheville, North Carolina. It was a citywide crusade, 1953. I was sitting in the back of the balcony with 3,000 people there. And the evangelist said, there's a young man in here tonight who's God's himself, his God's popularity. I said, who told him I was here? Somebody's told him all about me. He said, why don't you quit being your own God and come to Christ? I said, why don't you quit preaching to me? Don't you see these other 3,000 people here? And he said, if you'll come to Christ, if you'll take that first step, you'll have no trouble with the second. And I said, Lord, I can't go. I said, if I go, my friends will see me go, and it will inhibit my climb up the social ladder. But ladies and gentlemen, the next thing I knew, I found myself on the way downstairs. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I was a hell-deserving sinner. I know that counselor was glad to get rid of me. I cried all over him. And my sins flashed through my mind like a neon sign. And that night, Jesus became my personal Savior. Is He your personal Savior tonight? He knows you personally. Number two, He is, knows our thoughts. Psalm 94, verse 11, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Little girl got a doctor set for Christmas, and her daddy thought he'd have a little fun with her. He knew that she was reaching on the mantel for some candy, but she just couldn't get to it. So he went to the doctor's set and he got the stethoscope and he said, Honey, with this instrument, I can read your mind. She said, Daddy, I don't believe it. He put the nozzle to her head and he said, Honey, he said, I believe you want that candy on that mantel. She looked at her daddy, grabbed the stethoscope, went to the garbage can, threw it in the garbage can. She said, Daddy, I don't want anybody to know my thoughts. If you're truthful, you'd have to say, I don't want anybody to know my thoughts. But God Almighty knows them. Number one, he knows me personally. Number two, he knows my thoughts. Number three, he's acquainted with all of my ways. Job 31 and verse 4, Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? Job 34 verse 21, For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. Proverbs 15 and verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Before I started ambassador in 1989, for many years I would preach to 100,000 to 200,000 teens a year. And you know, the more I preach to Christian teens, quote unquote, the more I realize the average Christian teen is living in gross deceit about which his parents have no knowledge. And there may be young people in this building tonight who know where to go anything they want to get, they know where to go. I was preaching in Kansas City last night in the meeting, Friday night. 
Carl Herbster, the pastor, came to me. He said, Brother Comfort, I want you to pray for a girl who's here tonight. Her mother came to me and said, Pastor, I was awakened out of a dead sleep at 2 o'clock on Wednesday morning. She said it never happened before. She said, I went downstairs to my daughter's bedroom. I opened the door. The window was open. Her boyfriend had crawled through the window at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they were engaged in immorality. Now, they may have hidden it from Mama. They didn't hide it from God. I was preaching in Minneapolis, and one of my preacher friends came to me and he said, Brother Comfort, I just preached in a Christian school across town in St. Paul. He said, a lady came to the pastor whose boy was in the Christian school. And she said, Pastor, something's wrong with my boy. I don't know what it is. She said, do you have any insight? He said, no, ma'am, I don't. But he said, let me encourage you to do this. Go up to your son's bedroom, look under his mattress, and tell me what you find. The next day she came back to the pastor with a page full of the titles of dirty, filthy, rotten, pornographic magazines. Tears were coming down her face. She said, Pastor, I had no idea. She said, every perversion imaginable is in the magazines my son has been reading. She said, why, Pastor, he even has books on homosexuality and how to do it. Now, as I told that story, maybe somebody's mind went to the place where those books are hidden. You know what God says about that? One day, Luke chapter 18, the secret sins at the judgment bar of God are going to be made public. Why don't you get them under the blood of Christ tonight? Number one, God is holy. Number two, God is omniscient. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 89 and verse 14. Number three, God is justice. Psalm 89 and verse 14. It says... Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Nehemiah 9.33, how be it thou art just in all that is brought upon us. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. You know, everywhere I go, people are screaming for their rights. You go to Canada, and the French Canadian is screaming for his rights. You go to New Mexico, and the American Indian screaming for his rights. You go to Arizona, the Mexican-American screaming for his rights. The black people want their rights. The white people want their rights. The women want their rights. Everybody's saying, I want my rights. Hey, I had a bald-headed song leader that traveled with me for 40 years, and Larry Brubaker was waiting for the bald people to say, I want my rights. And I'm waiting for the short people to say, I want my rights. Now, it's terrible to be short, and it's terrible to be bald, but some of you are both, and that's a tragedy, <laughs> see. Somebody says, all I want out of life is what I deserve. You better not make that statement. If you and I get what we deserve, we'll be screaming from the sulfuric avenues of hell. I was in a meeting in Carnish Point, New Jersey years ago. 
a man said he had gone to a Methodist Sunday school teacher's funeral. And at the funeral, a man stood up and he eulogized the corpse. He said, folks, this was a good man. He said, I don't believe it's fair of God to take this man. He said, it never hurt anybody. He said, every Tuesday night, we played poker together. He said, it took an occasional drink, but he never hurt anybody. I want to say, if God sent the entire human race to hell, nobody could point to God and say, God, I did not deserve this. Hey, I read the story about a young lady driving through New York City. This was years ago, and you can tell by the story. Well, she had a heavy foot, like some of you that I know in this building. And uh, so she looked in her mirror in a beautiful black car with a bubble machine on top, pulled over the side of the road. Out of the car stepped a handsomely dressed man, nice black hat, black suit. He came over the window and he said, young lady, you've exceeded the speed limit. She said, officer, I didn't see any speed limit. He said, ignorance is no excuse. You're going before the judge. Well, she stood before the judge and he said, young lady, I'm a servant of the people. He said, I've been elected to my position. I am a just judge. And because you've broken the laws of our land, that'll be $15. You didn't get off that easy, did you? Well, after he pronounced the sentence, he stepped down from the platform, pulled off his robe, pulled out his billfold, said, here, honey, here's a $15. Tell mother I'll be a little late home tonight. <laughs> Don't you get it? The judge was the father of the girl. In order to be just, he had to find her. But his mercy paid the price. One day a just God looked down on the human race and he wrote, condemned. But thank God his mercy sent Jesus to pay the price for my sins. All right, in closing, number four, God is grace. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 116 and verse five. You know, you can preach the justice of God. You can preach the holiness of God, but you've got to include the grace of God too. You've got to preach it all. All right, notice please Psalm 116 and verse five. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. Psalm 145 and verse eight, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of a great mercy. John 1, 16 and 17, and of his fullness of all we received and grace for grace. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Someone said, Brother Comfort, what is the difference between mercy and grace? I'm going to give you a simple illustration that you'll never forget. All right, hypothetically, you're sitting in your house looking out the window, and your boy is playing with his friends. And so all of a sudden, he does something that is dangerous. So you go down and you say, son, would you come over here a minute? You say, now, son, I was watching you, and I saw you did something very dangerous and you could get hurt. Daddy loves you. He doesn't want you to get hurt. Don't you do that again. If you do that, Daddy's going to give you a spanking. Do you understand? Yes, sir. All right, the next night, you're watching your son play, unbeknowings to him. 
And he does the very thing that you've warned him not to do. So you open the window and you very sweetly say, son, get in this house. Well, he knows there's going to be bloodshed in the woodshed. So he comes in and he stands before you and you say, son, look at me in the eyes. Look at me in the eyes. Son, didn't I tell you not to do what you just did? Yes, sir. What did I say that if you did it was going to happen to you? I'd get a spanking. He said, son, a spanking is justice, but I'm not going to give you a spanking. That's mercy. Instead of giving you a spanking, here's five dollars. That's grace. You see, the justice of God condemns us to hell because we're sinners. All of sin and come sure, the glory of God. The mercy of God keeps a believing sinner from going to hell, but the mercy of God's not enough to take us to heaven. It takes the grace of God to give us the very opposite of what we deserve. I am what I am tonight by the grace of God. I was born in a Roman Catholic home in 1938. For the first seven years of my life, I never realized that there were any other people in the world but Jews and Roman Catholics. When I was seven, I met a girl that said she was a Baptist. Well, I thought she had a disease. I thought she belonged in an institution. I thought everybody ought to be a Roman Catholic. When I was six months old, my grandmother told me that she walked into our third story apartment. She saw my mother take me in her arms, was about to drop me from a three-story window. My grandmother grabbed me out of my mother's arms, threw my mother on the bed. Had my grandmother delayed five minutes, I'd have been a dead baby laying on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. Thank God that abortion was not legalized in 1938. If abortion had been legalized in 1938, there would be no Ron Comfort standing behind this pulpit tonight. I can remember ladies and gentlemen walking the sidewalks of Brooklyn at the age of four, picking up cigarette butts off the street and smoking them at the age of four. At the age of six, running around with a gang. You say, wait a minute, that's preposterous. A six-year-old running around with a gang, hey, we lived in the Bedford-Stuyvesant area, the worst area of all of Brooklyn. And in that area, you were either in a gang or you were the object of a gang. And my brother, who was four years older than I, and I felt it would be better to be in the gang than to be the object of the gang. I remember ladies and gentlemen walking those hot sidewalks in the summertime with shoes that had no soles in them. Simply a piece of leather stretched over the top of my feet. Some of the things I saw as a little boy, I didn't understand. But I'll never erase those things from my mind. Morning after morning, I saw my mother take a broom handle and beat my sister Eleanor across the bare back until the blood flowed from her back. My sister, who was five years older than I, died about 15 years ago in Hendersonville, North Carolina. But she said, Ronnie, do you know that up and down my spine tonight are scars from where I was beaten as an 11 and a 12-year-old girl? 
Many mornings I saw Elner run out the door, putting on her slip, putting on her dress to escape the beating of the broom handle. So many times I heard mother say she hated her four children. She wanted to gas us to death and kill us to get us out of her life because we hindered the way she wanted to live. My dad was in the military station in South Carolina. Every week he would send home $20 as an allotment for mother to buy groceries for four children. Instead of taking this $20 and buying groceries, my mother would spend days on end in the saloons and taverns. And many were the days we never saw my mother. Many were the days my brother Billy would go to the fruit stand and steal fruit off of the fruit stand so four little children could have something to eat. I remember coming home from the first grade one afternoon trying to get into our third story apartment. There was an article of furniture pushed against the door, obviously to keep anybody from entering. Well, with my little body, I pushed and I pushed and I pushed, and finally I pried it open just enough to squeeze my little body through. I'm sorry I did. You know why? I saw my mother and the landlord having immorality on the living room couch. And this was a way my mother paid her rent every month by having immorality with the landlord. Many were the nights my mother would go down on the streets of Brooklyn and take in men off the street that we had never seen before and have immorality right in front of four little children. When I was seven years of age, my mother and father received a divorce. And my mother realized she could not live like she wanted to live and care for four children. So this is what she did. She took three of us and put us on a bus like a package. She put a tag around my brother's neck and the tag read, these children are the property of William Comfort in Elmar, New York, see that he gets these children. At the time we had a sister, Connie, who was two years of age. And mother felt she was too young to put on the bus with the three of us. And I've thought about that, Pastor. I thought, what if my mother had said, Ronnie and Connie are too young to be put on the bus? I was seven. Do you know what? I probably never would have heard the gospel. I probably never would have been saved. There would be no ambassador Baptist college. There'd be no thousand graduates across the country and around the world preaching the gospel. So it was a grace, God. I believe this. Even before I was saved, God was molding me for what I'm doing right now. Say, where do you get that? Hebrews 1.14. Are not all they ministering spirits, angels, sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation? And so that day when we got on the bus, I remember as though it were last night what my brother and sister looked like. My brother and sister were nothing but a stack of skin and bones. My brother had on a pair of trousers that were tied around him with a rope. My sister had on a dress that had almost as many holes as it had material. And we got on the bus and got off at Elmar, New York. We thought Dad would be there waiting for us when we got off the bus. We looked around the bus depot and a policeman saw our plight. So he came over and he said, what are you kids doing? 
And my brother said, Sir, our mother in Brooklyn put us on the bus, and we thought Dad would be here at Elmira at the bus depot uh, to take us home. He said, well, let's look around the bus depot. No sign of Dad whatsoever. After we got through looking, he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you down the police station, and we're going to feed you a meal. Those policemen treated us so kindly that night. We had a meal like we had not had in such a long time. And after the meal was over, the policeman said, Now, we're going to take you to a children's shelter. You'll spend the night in the children's shelter, and we guarantee you that within 24 hours, we will find your father. The next afternoon, Dad came down the children's shelter. He claimed his three children, and I never will forget what he said on the way home. He said, kids, do you remember the woman I brought to Brooklyn and I introduced her to you as your Aunt Roxy from the South? He said, no, she wasn't your Aunt Roxy from the South. She was my girlfriend from the South. And now she's my wife and she's going to be your mother the rest of your lives. Ladies and gentlemen, the next eight years of my life were filled with nothing but fear. Oh, how I hated to see those weekends come. I knew my dad would have his drunken buddies in, and we would see fighting and immorality and hear cursing all night long. Many Saturday nights, I never slept a wink all night long. When we got to Elmira and we were there for a while, one day dad came to his new wife, Roxy, and he said, Roxy, New York State has not been good for the Comfort family. He said, I suggest that we turn that page in our life and go down to your roots in Asheville, North Carolina. My stepmother was thrilled to hear that. So we got on the bus and Elmira got off the bus in Asheville, North Carolina. With three children and a wife, my dad had one quarter in his pocket. One quarter. He was talking to my stepmother and he said, Roxy, what are we going to do? We don't have a place to live. She said, I'll tell you what, I've got an aunt, Aunt Myrtle, who owns a boarding house on Patton Avenue. She'll probably keep us until we get established. So we went down to Aunt Myrtle's boarding house and right away, folks, there was a head-on collision. My daddy was a thoroughbred Yankee. Aunt Myrtle was a thoroughbred Southerner. And I'll tell you, there was a civil war going on in that boarding house. One night, my stepmom and dad got drunk and got in a fight with each other. Aunt Myrtle called the police, and the police came and took my stepmother and my dad to jail. Here's a turning point. The lady next door asked if she could keep us until mom and dad were released from jail. You know who that lady was? Her name was Mrs. Tiller. Her son was a Bible-believing preacher known all over the state of North Carolina. I passed by an elderly gray-haired lady's bedroom. I watched her on her knees, and I saw the tears come down her face, and she cried, Oh, God, save Bill and Roxy Comfort behind bars tonight. Oh, God, save Billy and Elner and Ronnie Comfort. And that was the first person I had ever met in my life that cared anything about me. 
When I was 13 years of age, I woke up and I heard my stepmother talking to my dad about me. I was the only one left at home. My brother joined the military at 17 to get out of the house. My sister was married at 16 to get out of the house. I was the only one left at home. And about six o'clock in the morning, I heard my stepmother tell my dad this, Bill, I hate Ronnie. I cannot stand the sight of him. I wish we could get him out of our house. I want to say nothing that had ever happened in my life broke my heart as that did that morning. The woman that I respected and I called her mother, even though she was my stepmother, I heard her say she hated me. As I lay in bed, I wept bitter tears. And I said, God, I don't want to see a sunset. I don't want to see a sunrise. I don't want to see anybody. Nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. My brother in the military was on his way downtown in Panama City, Florida one Saturday with his buddy. And they were going to get drunk. They saw an outdoor meeting in a field in Panama City. And uh, they stopped and Billy said, let's listen to what that preacher has to say. And the preacher preached a simple gospel message. And when the preacher closed, he said, now if you'd like to have your sins forgiven and you'd like to know you're on your way to heaven, you come down and talk to me. So Billy told his buddy, he said, I'm going to go down and talk to that preacher. So he went down and he said, Preacher, he said, you said I could know that my sins are forgiven. He said, I've got a whole lot of them. He said, you said I could know I was on my way to heaven. He said, I'd like to know that. Can you tell me how to do that? And the preacher said, just get down on your knees and tell God you're a sinner and ask him to save you. And you know what my brother prayed? Now remember our background was Catholic. He prayed, Hail Mary full of grace. Blessed art thou among women. And the preacher said, no, that's not the prayer to pray. He said, okay. He said, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy. He said, no, that's not the prayer to pray. He said, just get down and tell God you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and receive him into your heart. And you know what? My brother got up a new creature in Jesus Christ. He didn't go downtown and get drunk. He went back to his barracks and he wrote his little brother a letter. He said, Ronnie, your self-righteousness is going to take you to hell. You need to get saved. He wrote my mom and dad and he said, Mom and dad, I want you to have what I have. I've been saved and God wants to save you. He came home on furlough and nine out of ten days he preached to his little brother. And he said, you think nobody loves you? I've got good news. Jesus loves you. And folks, that made all the difference. And I've never been the same in 67 years. And that night, I was saved. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. Aren't you glad that God is grace? And though your sins be as scarlet, they can be made as white as snow. Let's bow our heads in prayer.